What's the most important thing about you? What do you think it is? If someone asks you that question, what do you think you would answer? Is it where you live? Is it what you do? To whom you are married? How many kids you have? What your family looks like? Surely it couldn't be what sports team you root for. We live in a culture where your sexual identity or your race or your trauma, they actually define you according to culture. But what is the most important thing about us? A.W. Tozer, if you've never read Tozer, I highly recommend him said this. The most important thing about us is what comes to our mind when we think about God. The most important thing about us is what comes to our mind when we think about God. He's right. Your life is formed around your view of God. This is true in morality. This is true in our views of justice. This is true in how we spend our time, our effort, our resources. We've seen throughout the book of Malachi that God comes in love to his people to confront them on how they are living, but notice the problem here. If we were to just simply say, here's their problem, they have a faulty view of the sacrificial system, then we would be uh, talking about the symptom, not the cause. So to talk about the symptom is to say, look, they were bringing lame, blind, stolen animals. But what was the cause? The cause was this. They had a faulty view of God. They had a low view of God. So what does God do? He comes to them to address that, to remind them of who he is, that he is a great king, that he is worthy of their honor, their reverence, their awe. And he constantly refers to himself in this way. We haven't even talked about this yet. 23 times in this short book of Malachi, the Lord refers to himself as the Lord of hosts. You may not have noticed, but he says it over and over and over again. But what does it mean? 23 times in this book. 261 times in the Old Testament. He is the Lord of hosts. What is that? He's saying to us that he is the Lord, the King of the armies of the heavenly beings. That he is the Lord of battle. Picture that with me. You remember in the Bible when someone comes upon, and we've talked about this before, someone comes upon an angel, what do they do? They shut their mouths, they fall down on the ground before the angels. They they know that they are in the presence of a power that could overcome them, that could end them in a moment's notice. Picture what John talks about in the book of Revelation. Angels ready for battle, ready for war, armed and shielded with and by the glory of the king of heaven. And here we have this picture that there are those angels that uh, that a man, a woman would fall down before. And then John says, and there were myriads and myriads of them. Thousands upon thousands, more than could ever be counted. And they were shielded and they were ready for battle. Picture that. An army so great of angelic beings that you couldn't even count them. Golden shields, 
golden helmets, the sun, the light of the glory of God shining off those shields so bright you can't see. A glory that blinds you. And you see that army of angels and you think, how great. Who could stand against that? Who could make a dent in that army? Who could lead that army? If that's what they are like, what must be the king who sits on the throne behind them? And that's the picture that God has given right here. He comes to his people and he says, I am that king. That's who I am. I am the Lord of hosts. And he doesn't stop there. He says, I am the Lord of hosts and I love you. I'm with you. I'm for you. But your problem is that you've forgotten who I am. You've forgotten that I am a great king. You've forgotten what it says in Amos chapter 4, verse 12. He says this, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and who treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. But you, you refer to me as the man upstairs. You say, Someone up there likes me. You wear t-shirts that say, God is dope. You think I'm okay with half-hearted worship? You think I'm fine with you living your lives in opposition to my law and my rule? What's the problem? You've forgotten who I am. And the symptoms of that have infected the entirety of your life. And so God comes to his people once again this morning in the text, and he reminds us who he is. So if you would, let's read together, starting at Malachi chapter 3, and we will begin at verse 7. This is what he says. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine and the fields shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight says the Lord of hosts. Notice what God says. You do what your fathers have always done, Israel. You've turned from my statutes. You've forgotten my laws from what I've commanded you. Return to me, says the Lord. Repent. And they respond to them. How should we do that? In other words, 
what are you talking about? What do you mean return to you? How should we do that? We never left. We're still here. We still come. We still bring offerings. They may not be the offerings you want, these lame, blind, stolen animals, but we bring them. God, what do you want from us? And so God asked them a question. Will a man rob God? Will a man rob the Lord of hosts? And they respond, what do you mean robbing? How are we robbing you? And God responds to them in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, God says, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. If you're visiting here with us today, thank you for coming. Some of you, you you hear what this is about. You know this is about giving. You hear that it's about tithes and contributions. And some of you, I I didn't hear anybody do it out loud, but up here you thought, psh, Baptists love this stuff. Preachers love preaching on this. I don't need to hear this. And essentially what you just did is you heard this and you scoffed. You're doing exactly what the fathers have always done. Chapter 1, verse 13 of this same book says, you say what a weariness this is and you snort at it. But what you need to say is this. Okay, Lord of hosts, speak. I'm listening. And so God says, you're robbing me. You're taking what is mine. You're keeping it. And that's called robbing. You aren't obeying. And so God is lovingly coming to them and saying, return to me. Repent. Come back to me and I will come back to you. I want to make something clear to us. Make sure we understand this. The God that we just described, this Lord of hosts, guess what? He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need anything. You know why? Because it's his already. Your money is his already. Everything in this universe is his already. Looks like it's going to be a beautiful day outside. Thank God. He caused his son, S-U-N, to come up this morning. And I think I'm going to enjoy that later while all these people are sleeping. (laughs) The moon and the stars, they're his. The ground upon which this building sits His. The water that falls from the sky and returns to it, His. You and I are His. The breath we have in our lungs right now, just like we sang just a few moments ago, it's His. The Bible tells us you and I are being held together right now, that everything in this universe is being held together right now by Him. That in Him, you and I live and move and have our being that the cattle on a thousand hills, that every hill is his. Not because someone gave cattle to him, not because he won cows in a card game. They were his to begin with because he created them. 
The grass that they eat, which springs from the dirt that he made, that sits on the hill he owns, and the state that he rules, and the nation that will one day bow down to him. It's all his. He doesn't need you to give it to him. That's not why he's telling you to give to him. But the fact is this, that you are meant to give back to God out of what he has blessed you with. And if you don't, God doesn't call it a simple misunderstanding. What does he call it? Robbery. And because it's happening, notice what God says. Because they are not giving to him what he is due and what his statutes and laws and rules call them to, he says that they are cursed. Think about that earlier in Malachi chapter 2, verse 2. God is speaking to the priests and he says, I've cursed your blessings. And now because they are not being obedient in what they are supposed to do, what do we see? More curses. You're under the curse because you're not being obedient. Can we stop pretending like obedience doesn't matter? Do you know what I mean when we say that? Like, people will often be like, well, I'm a child of God. I'm forgiven. There's grace. Obedience matters for the child of God. And if obedience to God doesn't matter to you, more than likely that means what? You are not a child of God. And the call would be the same. Repent. Come to Him in faith. Now, you, you may look at this and say, look, I used to give, or I give some... But prices have gone up. Have you guys bought eggs lately? That's why we're asking for plastic ones. Nobody can afford the real ones anymore. It's insane. You may say, business has been slow. Sales are down. When things pick back up, I will start giving again. But this is all I have, and I need all that I have. In the book of Haggai, just two books before this, anyone spending a lot of time in Haggai recently? Not so much? We read how God had called his people to rebuild his house. That his house, his temple had been destroyed and he caused his people to rebuild it and they had not done it yet. And so he says in, in verse 4 of chapter 1, he says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while my house, this house, lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and you've harvested little. You eat but you never have enough. You drink, but you would never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And who, he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I, God says, blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. 
Look, why do we start at chapter 1, verse 1, and work our way through? Because we have to deal with all of it. That when God comes to us and hits us like this, we say, well, it's next. We're not going to skip it. We're going to talk about it. What's our natural tendency? That when times are tough, when money is short, when things get tight, what do we do? We cut back as we should. But oftentimes, one of the main places that we cut back is where? It's in our giving. And we say things like, well, the Lord understands. Times are tough. He doesn't need it. You know, that cattle in the hill stuff. There's a drought, you know. No dew is coming from heaven. Crops aren't good. The earth has withheld. So I need what I have. I need it for food and for clothes, for my house, for drink. And God comes and says, I know. I control the rains. The crops, they come from me. And you've withheld from me. You've robbed from me because you have needs. But you need to understand something. The problem is that it was never your money that provided. It was never your food that nourished you. It was never your drink that satisfied you or your home that sheltered you. I did all of that. And yet you came to the place where you started trusting in them rather than in me. So now I'm withholding. I've cursed, God says, even your blessings. Why? So that you will repent and you will return to me and you will see me as your great provider because I love you. And in his love, notice that he doesn't come. And I hope you're not hearing this like, like this. He doesn't come with tablets of stone and law and just bash you over the head with it. He doesn't say, you guys are pathetic. You guys don't trust me at all. Your faith is worthless. No. He comes to us not with the pain of a beating, but with the promise of a blessing. Look at verse 10. Essentially, he says, repent. What does it look like? Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Look, this isn't a obey my law or else talk. This is obey me and watch what I do. Trust me, and I will provide for your needs. Test me by bringing the offering in, and I will open the windows of heaven, and I will shower down on you in provision. This isn't some two-bit hit-and-run lawyer coming to you and saying, hey, come to me, and I will get you what is your due. This is the Lord of hosts saying, test me in this. Bring your offering, even on those days where it doesn't make sense. Even on the days where the red outweighs the black, where the pension isn't stretching like it needs to, for it's on those days where we actually see and learn who or what you trust. People of God, are you trusting your boss, your pension, your paycheck, 
Or are you trusting the Lord of heaven and earth? Look, I, I could hear a response to this being, look, that's the Old Testament. I know it's only one page into the Old Testament that we're so close from the New Testament, but that's the Old Testament. What about the word for the church? Well, let's think about that. In Philippians 4, Paul is on the missionary journey and he writes back to the church at Philippi and he's commending them because they gave to the mission of God even when they had needs among themselves. They didn't have much and yet they said, we want to be involved in the mission you have. And so Paul writes them in Philippians 4.18 and he says this, I got your gift, I got what you sent, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And this is what he says next. Understand this. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What's he saying? You gave even though you had need. So understand this. God is going to give to you. God will meet your need as you trust in him. He will do it. In 2 Corinthians 9, we get a similar story. Paul is writing about a collection that the church in Corinth was taking up for the saints in Jerusalem who had been under severe persecution. And this is what he says in verse 6. He says, the point's this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one of us must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And in verse 10, he continues, he who supplies uh, seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and will increase the harvest of your righteousness, that you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. We could go on and on and on about this. The picture is there. Romans 8.32 says this, Look, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give all things? Look, look. if you are not a regular churchgoer, you might come in today and you say, see, I knew it. It's a racket. It's all about money. It's all about earnings. It's all about giving. Buy some more golden toilet seats, huh? Is that what's happening? No. Not at all. Look, you, won't, you won't be saved by giving an offering. You won't be forgiven by giving an offering. You won't be made righteous, made right with God when the plates pass and you put stuff in and you say, hey, God's pleased with me now. No, no, no. Here's the deal. We are sinners to our core at odds with God. That's where we were. And our greatest need God has met by sending a Savior, by sending His own Son, Jesus Christ, to live a righteous life we didn't live, to die a sacrificial death you and I deserved, to be raised again in glory and seated at the right hand of God. What is the good news of the gospel? Is it give money? You put in offerings? No. 
It's this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. That anyone, no matter who you are or what you've done, when you turn from your sin and turn to Jesus in faith, you are saved, you are forgiven. His life, His righteousness becomes yours. And your sin is carried by Him to the cross. That's the good news. And that's what Romans 8 is saying. Look, do you really think that as you are faithful with your stuff and faithful with your money, that the God who gave his own son for you will suddenly become chintzy? I know I gave you my son, but that electric bill is steep. That's what he's saying, no. He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him for you. Do you really think he's not going to provide for your need? Think about Jesus in Matthew 6. Look at the birds of the air. They should be out today. They neither reap nor they gather, but the Lord provides food for them. Look at the flowers. Not even Solomon is arrayed in splendor like them, that God gives to them what they need. Then they're here today and gone tomorrow. Is your life not worth more than those? It's all the same. This picture throughout the Bible that says, as my people trust me, they will see me provide for them abundantly. So what's the message this morning? Trust God. He will provide. Continue to obey him by giving in faith and God will meet all of your needs. The prosperity gospel says this. It's a weird day to have golden toilets when I'm about to talk about the prosperity gospel. Give to God and he'll give you the Corvette. You won't find that in the Bible. What does he say? Give to God... And he will meet your needs. He will. He will provide for you. Sow bountifully and reap bountifully. Bring my offerings and see that I will cast open the windows of heaven for you. And I will bless you. That God is laying before you a blessing this morning. It's not about the law. I had somebody, and I'm pretty sure they were joking when they said it. But we preached on this a few months ago because we were in a different book that talked about this. And I talked about how the New Testament doesn't give us the command to tithe or to give 10%. That that's not in the New Testament. Rather, it calls us to freely and joyfully give to the ministry of the kingdom. And I had somebody in this room come up afterwards and say to me, you let them off the hook. Again, I think they were kidding. But this is the biblical picture we need to understand. There is no hook. This isn't meant for bondage or to enslave you or to chain you. That what God is laying before us is the incredible blessing of being involved in His eternal purposes by giving to being a part of it. And the marvelous promise that He gives is this. As you provide for the needs of the ministry, He provides for your needs. That as you give, He gives to you. That as you are a blessing to others, he blesses you. It's almost like we've thought wrongly about it so long that it's just law, 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 that it kind of blinds us when we see it because we can't quite make heads or tails of it. This is meant to bring freedom and joy and blessing, not bondage. 
that Satan has convinced us that even God's commands that are for our good are simply God withholding from us. Don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie that holding on to our money that we are meant to have a part of in the ministry is, is okay. It's not. God calls us to more. And he even throws this out and says, test me. Watch me. Trust me. I will cast open the windows of heaven and bless you. I don't know about you. I, I kind of want to see that. I want to see what that looks like. Like When we come together for worship, even our giving is an act of worship because it says, we trust you, God. We're not trusting in our wealth, our possessions, our pensions. We're trusting in you. That we trust you, Lord of hosts, to take this money, to take what we give and use it in the fight as you battle, as you carry the name of Christ on your banner. And we trust that you are faithful, God, that as we give to you, you will be faithful to your word. You, God, will open up the windows of heaven. You will provide for our every need. So, brother and sister, here's the question for us. Do we trust him? Do we trust him?